it's been easier for Tom to get people to visit in beautiful Edinburgh than it was in Lviv, Ukraine. And um, I guess, if you, I guess you, Ukraine has changed some since then. Praise the Lord. That's good to know. Um, I'll clarify one thing. I was not a Marine. Now, I appreciate Marines. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, so um, <laughs> I love Marines. I just can't be called a Marine. And, and if you're a Marine, thank you very much. Okay. Um, your Navy appreciates you. All right. Anyway, so um, no, I'm teasing. Um, Tom is just a, a dear friend. I love Tom and Gene. My only regret about Tom is we live across the world from each other. And um, he's a, a fine man, fine ministry. I've never seen a better dad than he is. Um, you know, to raise six girls, um, all of which love God and love you in today's culture. In Europe, I might add. Um, missionary children are not exactly... Uh, known for always loving God all the time. Um, so I appreciate just what Tom and Gene have done. It's tremendous. I so appreciate Jim. I, my mind was going back to some of the shaping moments of my life. Um, I'll never forget, it must have been 1979, I was trying to, Jim and I were talking, National Leadership Conference, talking to Pastor Bob also. The country was in, in serious shape. Um, and um, I don't know no talk political, but I think it's important to Jimmy Carter been president and, and Teddy Kennedy, not exactly known for his moral life, was making a powerful run for presidency. In fact, he was um, leading in all the polls to replace Jimmy Carter. And I, there must have been 2,000 pastors that come to that meeting. I can't remember, but we, we're all carrying something in our heart that the country was in trouble and the direction of the country was wrong. And I know Jimmy Carter to be a born-again man and a moral man. There's no criticism of him, but... We were called to fast two days a week. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I, 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 we went on a Jewish fast, thank the Lord, which means that you could kind of, you, you, you could eat like whenever the sun came down or something like that. I, I started wearing real dark glasses in the afternoon so I could eat earlier. But anyway, we did it a whole year. I was so hungry. Like I'd bring, a, I'd bring me a big lunch sack and hope the sun would fall down. But anyway, we did it, we did it for a year in, in Teddy Kennedy scandal began to come back up out of his past, and he dropped out of the election, divided the Democratic Party, and Ronald Reagan won election. And maybe he didn't like Ronald Reagan, but he did some very great things for this country. And I, I look back at that may have been the most significant Christian meeting I was ever in. I mean, that, that it really changed the course of the nation through the power of prayer. I'll never forget that. I can remember um, being at a meeting here with um, Pastor Bob and um, John Wimber and Jamie Buckingham and Paul Kane, it was Paul Kane said that next time we have this meeting, a lot of you will be dead. I mean, Bob remembers how, how scared he got. That's a scary meeting. I mean, and, and Jamie and, and John are no longer, and Bob almost no longer. And I, I, I look at, I mean, well, that's, 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 I'm not saying he's not well preserved, but I mean, he about died after that with mercury poisoning. Anyway, okay. Now, so I, I have a lot of history here, and I also love coming here because it's the only meeting I'm in in the year when I'm not the oldest person. Um, <laughs> It's, at 59, I'm the oldest member on our apostolic team. We work in 73 countries. I have a couple about to catch me, but I mean, I'm always the oldest. I mean, now in Kings Park, there are a few older people than me, and I'm thankful. But to be here and realize I'm young here is a very wonderful. I'm 59. It's like the new 40. I feel good. Um, before I speak, and I'll say one thing about Pastor Bob, of course, as a young man, his thinking um, so molded my life on the wilderness, on temptation, on the harbor lights of guidance. I still use them. I told him last night, I've been using his harbor light teaching for decades, and for the first two years, I told people it was from him. 
After that, I forgot it was from him, and it seemed like it was from the Lord in prayer. But anyway, it's okay. I appreciate that. But so it's just wonderful to be here with. And I'll, as much as I appreciate the great legacy of teaching Pastor Bob's left us, his greater legacy is being 83, married to the same woman, walking morally and serving God for 71 years. And um, there's just, I'll just tell you, there's, there's something to be said for finishing the race. There just is. There are a lot of people that started with me that are gone. There are a lot of people that started with him that are gone. I mean, scandal seems to take men left and right. It was another friend of mine who Bob probably knows well, Emmanuel Canastracy. Emmanuel Canastracy is 83, still serving the Lord, still married to the same woman, still walking with God. We're together at a conference every year speaking. Um, so it's quite a privilege to be here. Um, so much history has, has happened here. Um, I'm going to speak and prophesy today. I'll probably speak first unless the Holy Spirit just drops on me to prophesy um, before I speak. But I, I want, is, is our sound person here? She came and put the microphone on me. Is she around? If you see her again, I want to prophesy over her. So, so if we find our sound girl, I'm going to need her. But she's coming back. Don't let me forget her. Um, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you for these great people. Thank you for... Lord, the challenge last night that came for us to live, Lord, in an ascended way. And Lord, God knows we need it. We, we need your power. Corruption's destroying our country. It's wrecking the lives of many we love. Help us, Lord. Amen. Um, this, will, this, will, this will not be a light word. I might as well not break the flow from last night. Um, this, is, this is a word that Lord began to birth into my spirit in September. Um, it... It took me by surprise. I go to a, a prophetic conference, 17 straight years in Maui, Hawaii. I know that you shouldn't feel sorry for me. Trust me. I never see the ocean. I'm in that building before the sun comes up and when it goes down. But anyway, it's a good time for me every year to reflect and get out of my own world and ask the question, what is God saying to the church? And a group of prophets come together every year from all over, and, and it's, I love that opportunity and um, have the opportunity to speak there and all. And I'm going to entitle this word, Decamped. It's a word that basically means taken out of the camp. I'm going to subtitle it, Facing the Reality of Our Own Brave New World. Um, in 1931, Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World. It was dystopian, talking about the destruction of society. And in that um, book, he predicted a world where marriage was no longer important, that it was basically people just didn't get married. He predicted a world where Christians and religious people ended up on reservations and taken out of the rest of society because they weren't accepted. And my point is not that we're there. My point is we are facing in the United States our own brave new world. Um, make no mistake about it. Um, Pastor Bob talked about the darkness we've all felt. Well, that's not in your mind. It really is darker in our country than ever before. As political and moral walls have crumbled, we're facing a level of darkness here that's unusual. I want to say, before I brave into this message and speak to you prophetically about where we're going as a country and what we should do as a church, I want to let you know that I, I pray for our presidents, whoever they are. I pray for George Bush. I pray for Barack Obama. Every day, Christ requires me to. I don't speak evil of my presidents. Quite honestly, I'm deeply disappointed with both the Democratic and the Republican Party right now. Um, I think both of them break God's heart. I don't know about you, in the last election, I was deeply troubled by both candidates we had to vote for. It, it, it scared me, the choices we were given in our country. And um, so 
be that as it may, I'm so glad to be an American. Um, traveling the world like I do, there's still not a country I'd rather live in. We do have the freedom to pray and change, and we're not being persecuted. We could be in China. We could be in North Korea. We could be in the Muslim world where my son lives. We could be where Tom lives in Europe. They truly are post-Christian there. It's not a joke. I was in Berlin, 1.5% churched in Berlin. Beloved, trust me, we have a lot to be thankful for here. Now, the verse that I want to start with is Hebrews 13, 11 through 14, and I believe this verse summarizes some of the things I feel. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We know that Jesus was rejected by his own nation. And that rejection cost them horribly as that city was reduced to rubble in 70 AD. Terrible judgment came. Jesus, the one answer to what plagued that broken nation was rejected by them and was basically put outside the camp, condemned as impure, condemned as no good, condemned as a heretic, condemned as a blasphemer. And I believe that we are in the process in our own nation of beginning to bear some of the reproach Jesus felt, that many of the foundations our nation was built upon really are shifting quite a bit. I've chosen the title Decamped because I believe the church in America is slowly heading into an extended period of time in a social and political wilderness. I'm not predicting some great persecution. I don't expect to be killed in America because I'll read a Bible. I don't, you sometimes hear that. I, I believe that basically is, is foolishness at best. But I do believe that we're in the process of losing much of our historic privilege in this country and much of our historic respect. I have the privilege of prophesying over many people um, from the poorest to the poor to major leaders in the body of Christ and leaders around the world. Some months ago, my, my phone rings just from crazy places and I ended up in a short period of time praying over probably the most powerful prayer leader in all of America who's mobilized thousands of people crying on the phone as his prayer ministry had gone bankrupt, agonizing over America, and a moral man. So also prophesied over probably the most powerful political activist in the country today, conservative Christian, heartbroken, and just realizing these men who had been just such extraordinary men standing in the gap, just broken over what they were seeing. Now, if this, what I'm saying is true, the pace of this process will depend on the region of the country you're living in, your demographic, and the realities of spiritual awakening. Without dramatic change, it is inevitable. If you live in Charlotte, 77% of the people on a given Sunday morning go to church. If you live in New England, 2.5% do. If you live between Harvard and MIT, where we've been planning a church that's just grown to hundreds, God be praised, maybe 1% do. When 9-11 hit in Manhattan, 1% of people in Manhattan were going to church in the world's most influential city. 
today, after a decade of prayer and church planning and crying out, and the fact that that terrible bombing fractured the demonic hold in the city and there was an outcry for God, 3% now go to church. You may think that's not much. It's better than 1%. Um, there, there are parts in, of our country basically pagan, beloved, um, up and down the northeast, up and down the, the northwest. And so many of you, like me, come from the Bible Belt. Now, of course, I don't know if you want to classify Chapel Hill as the Bible Belt. I live close to that. That is maybe like, a, a, maybe like quite not the Bible Belt. But anyway, in fact, quite honestly, it's pushing it for sure. But now you live in the, tri you live in the Triangle area. That, that's very different. I mean, it's, it's a different world than, say, other parts of North Carolina. So we live in some change. I'm describing this concept as outside the camp because in the Old Testament, outside the camp was a place of rejection, shame, and death. It was where criminals were executed, carcasses were burned, and the sick and the sinful and the unclean were confined until they were healed and or purified. Even as Jesus was rejected by the society of his day, so the American church is coming into her own time of societal, political rejection and exclusion. It's already happening. I have seven children, and many of them have gone to extraordinary universities, and some are still. I was with one of them in arguably one of the two or three best universities in the world recently, and she was getting a master's degree there and took me in to meet her classmates, and they're from every political campaign and every powerful place in America. So trust me, she was the only pastor's daughter there. She was a fish out of water. And it was just a different different world. And these are the people being raised and trained to take over the world in the next generation. It's just a different world out there. Now let me say, I've never been more optimistic for the church, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. I'm also optimistic for our country, but I want you to understand without some type of revival that's not yet come, we're in the process of losing our historic privilege. And it may not all live in our lifetime, but our children and grandchildren are facing a brave new world. It is reality. Now, in the midst of this challenging season, in 2010, the Holy Spirit came to me five times before this decade we're currently in, all concerning the next 10 years. I saw, talked to him about Arab Spring, all this is in writing. He talked to me about things that were going to happen over the next 10 years in different nations and parts of the world and economically and all. But I saw this great dark cloud cover America, but when it did, it began to rain in places in America that seemed like asphalt and dry wilderness became harvest beds. So in the middle of me watching us kind of being forced outside the mainstream of America, how many of you know you, 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 you best not talk about sexual orientation or other religions, but you can castigate Christianity all you want? It's just a fact. That, that we are, we're, we're fair game and fair target now. And that's just reality that we're ridiculed, we're, we're mocked, everyone likes to laugh at us, and we're basically slowly but surely, beloved, being pushed outside the mainstream of American life. Now, despite all that, the enemy always overplays his hand. And I want you to, let me explain some things to you. It doesn't scare me because in the end, and it'll be before the end of this decade, we're going to begin to see, the Lord told me, the greatest burst of evangelism in America that we have seen in a long time. I just tell you this by the Spirit. As we come into this decade, the stats of church growth and church attendance are going to begin to change, and let me tell you why. As I've pondered this, it's what, the only word I have is what I see going on is a divine reversal. 
Those areas of the world which have been most resistant to the gospel, sometimes for hundreds of years, in America even for centuries, there's a change beneath the surface going on that's going to create new receptivity in the soil. Let me explain this to you for a moment before I even go a little deeper here. Basically, when you look at the conditions of soil in a country, the soil goes from ripe for harvest, how many of you love that, ripe for the gospel, to rotten. Now, what is rotten? Rotten is simply a harvest that was not picked. And if something's not picked when it's ripe, it becomes rotten. So people are looking around saying America is rotten. Well, she's gone rotten because she wasn't picked when she was ripe and the gospel was rejected. Here's the interesting thing. When something begins to rot, how many of you ever know what a compost pile is? I hate compost piles. My wife loves them. We've been married 37 years, and I told her, I said, baby, I said, I'm in a deep rift with you over this compost pile. I said, it's the first time I've ever been out of harmony with you philosophically. And I said, you're telling me you're going to get it and do it yourself, but that's not true. You're going to get it, and I'm going to crank that nasty, dirty thing. And of course, that's true. So, but what I begin to find is things that I want to throw in the trash, she throws in that composter, and they tumble around, and after a year, I pour it back into her garden, and it's the perfect soil. Here's what happens. Sin does our work for us. Sin is so corrupting and brings such decomposition that when sin is left unchecked in a nation, it so kills joy, so kills life, so kills beauty, so kills purity, that the soil begins to decompose and re-enriches for the gospel. It's what happened in the Roman Empire. Now, in America, as sin does its work and as corruption does its work, and as people find out whatever the laws say, that same-sex marriage is just not as fulfilling, it just doesn't work, it just brings more grief, as are all now, for, we're the first time in decades that that more Americans than not don't believe in abortion anymore. Why? The sonogram, kill their joy. Those are really lives in there. So, so when you look at this decomposing, the corrupting of American society, all of a sudden, this decomposing creates a compost for the gospel. And as they thrust us more and more from the mainstream of society, as they thrust Christians more and more, they lose the restraining power of Christian righteousness and the Holy Spirit. And the process, beloved, just gets better. So you're going to find an, a hunger growing in the most hardened areas of America. Watch what God does in the northeastern sector of America. Those areas which were once the cradle of Christianity in the country, they're going to reignite with the fire of the Spirit again. Why? They've had so little Christian presence and so much corruption. There's so much pain. They're ripe for an intelligent presentation of the gospel. Same in the Northwest. It's amazing. So despite my grief over realizing, okay, we're being pushed out of the mainstream of American life. We're, we're slowly being pushed legally. We're slowly being pushed. I was talking to one of the greatest commentators, Christian commentators in American history today. He's a dear friend of mine. He's written books to sold to millions on the presidency. And he told me, he said, man, Jim, he said, if I started a church today, he said, I don't even know if I'd waste time getting, getting a tax status. He said, because we may well lose that soon. I mean, there's so much pressure coming. Now, beloved, as we're pushed kind of out of the camp into a wilderness situation, the church in America, beloved, is heading toward the wilderness. That's where we're heading. Despite the biggest churches we've ever had and despite these things, we're headed toward the wilderness. Now, let me say one thing before I talk about why would God bring us into the wilderness as a church 
Why isn't that bad? Why is it good? I've pondered this and wondered about this, beloved. Have you ever wondered why our culture has declared war on us? Just raise your hand if you've wondered that. That worries me a little bit. Probably part of the real ignition of Christians trying to gain power in the country probably happened right here in 1979. But it wasn't about politics, it was about prayer. And I worry that, and I, I mean, I'm training a whole generation of young Christian politicians now. I believe in that. Uh, I believe in voting. But I worry we were too quick to put down spiritual weapons and pick up the arm of the flesh. That I watched so many great pastors become politicians and prophets become pundits and just begin to become kingmakers and, and give up their spiritual power by castigating and beating our culture. And I saw so many ugly emails. It just scared me. It's almost like Jesus wouldn't have done that. And I, I, I believe in voting. I mean, I've marched on Washington for abortion. I believe in all that. But I'm concerned, beloved, that we help to start this war. We have to be so careful that the arm of the flesh really will fail us. And how many of you know, as, as much as many of us voted for Republican, the Republican Party failed us as well. And it, it's, it's just the truth, beloved. I'm speaking to you as, as a, a Christian conservative. And so I see these things where for all the political power we had, a lot of what we hoped to be accomplished never was. And I'm telling you, I don't give up voting as a Christian, but my, the ultimate hope of the church in America is not the Republican Party. It is the church. It is you and I, beloved. It's you and I. And I'll tell you this by the Holy Spirit. 2010, I saw the Statue of Liberty on her side in deep, in, in deep travail with an American flag over her. And um, she was in agonizing birth pains. And I said, what's going on? God told me this. He said, son, if one of the two main political parties does not return to her roots, I'll birth another. And he said, by the end of this decade, there'll be a whole new generation of politicians. You'll see them. They'll be some of the finest America's seen in years, but their allegiance won't be to any political party. It'll be to what's right. And, and, and we're going to find that, that God's eye is on our country. And so I'm voting, praying, believing, fasting, like I always have. But my ultimate hope is not in who's going to recapture the White House. At best, even our best Christian presidents have only restrained evil and bought us more time for the church to do her job. There's unprecedented evil loose in our country right now. It breaks my heart. I never thought I'd, I'd be born in the America I was and growing old in the America I am in. I never thought that. And that's all right. Be that as it may, beneath the sorrowful soil, there is a decomposition and a corruption going on that will end up breaking down the resistance of people to the gospel and they'll hunger for that truth which is eternal and life-filled as long as we ourselves aren't walking in the same corruption and habit. Now, if this is true, what I'm saying, and it is, how do we respond to this like, what, what, what promises might we have Let's look at this for a minute here. Let me talk about this wilderness for a moment. 
How many of you have felt more spiritual warfare? I have. Maybe a sense of powerlessness that even in your own country, you just feel helpless right now to stop the, the tide you see and just things that you never thought you'd see in your country. How do we respond to that? How do we respond when the playing field politically is not just being leveled, but we're, we're going to lose a level playing field where we don't have the power we once did and our, that the Christian conservatives aren't as powerful and how do we live in that world? Well, the good thing is, how many of you know the church under Nero didn't do bad? I mean, there's a couple hundred million Christians in China with no political power. Let me tell you something. Church has always done better when she doesn't have political power. It's because as long as we have political power, we don't ever much depend on prayer power. And so to have a seeming moment of feeling powerless will cast us upon the one great power in the world who can change our country and bring awakening in a moment. May he bring another. Nothing ever changes. I, I recently finished a 1,500-page biography on Jonathan Edwards, lasting by a man of Marston. It was just profound. And Jonathan Edwards was preaching away on, you know, drinking in college, um, you know, premarital sex. Do you realize back in those days when he was preaching, when there wasn't a great awakening, 50% of the girls when they got married were pregnant out of wedlock? I mean, trust me, there's always been sin in America. I studied the statistics. When revival came, it'd fall down to about 15%. Bundling was not exactly the best dating process. Okay, now, it's just a fact. I mean, the things we agonize over are the very same things Jonathan Edwards agonized over. Drinking in college, you know, the country. I mean, we face this. But God, God's helped us over and over. You know something? He helped us in 1979. He'll help us now. But we've just got to reach out and grasp for the right power. What we need is not ultimately the right president, although I'd be happy to change. What we need, beloved, is the fresh power of God to help us. Now, let's talk about this. I want to talk to you about the wilderness, and I've pondered this for a while. As we go in the wilderness, I want to say we've got the power of Christ to help us. One of the most interesting scriptures is in Leviticus 16, 7 through 10, and 21 through 26. It's a, it's a very mysterious passage of scripture that I've been feeding on for the last few months. Leviticus 16. Now, this is a crazy one, so get ready for it. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Two goats. This is weird. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. <laughs> Azazel. That's, that's basically in kind of Jewish cosmology, the prince of demons. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord uses a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. It may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the heads of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people, all the transgressions, etc. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities and go into a remote area. He'll let the goat go free in the wilderness. And then the man comes back and bathes himself. Now, this is a very, very unique Passage of Scripture. I'm reading out of the ESV there. Scholars debate the meaning of this passage, but all of them agree this was not an atoning sacrifice to Azazel. Um, the word Azazel means removed, forsaken, or abandoned. In both apocryphal and Jewish literature, Azazel is understood as a powerful demonic spirit, even the chief demonic spirit. Many Christian scholars believe Azazel speaks of Satan or Lucifer. 
If Azazel truly is another name for Satan, how do we interpret this passage? Let me see if I can just lay this out for you. Once a year, the high priest of Israel would take two goats. He'd lay hands on both of them. One would be sacrificed as an atoning sacrifice. We get that. The other would be led out into the wilderness for seven days by a hand-picked Jewish person. Now, the wilderness was considered the abode of demons, the abode of death outside the camp. Now, we know from studying Jewish history that at the end of the seven days, that Jewish man would lead this goat to a cliff and basically help it commit suicide. In other words, a picture of, you know, battling the devil, tormenting the enemy, facing the enemy. Now, what does this mean? Well, very simply, it means this. Jesus was both goats. He was the goat that redeemed us at Calvary. He was also the goat that went out into the wilderness for 40 days and faced all the power of Azazel. What was one of the last temptations? Go up and jump off. The same spirit that we found manifested in that goat for hundreds of years when that goat would be led to commit suicide came after Jesus. Here's the difference. He is the only goat to ever come out of the wilderness. Now, I'm going to tell you this by the Holy Ghost. The same Jesus that met and defeated Azazel in 40 days is with you. I know the pressure is up. Many of you are agonizing over your children today, your grandchildren. You're concerned today. You're agonizing over people in your family. You find yourself in some wilderness of your health. You've just faced Azazel. Man, your finances have been shaken up in the Great Recession, the one the government said was never here, and now the one they tell us is gone. And so all these things we faced. Listen, tell you now, you can meet Jesus in a whole new way. He is the second goat. Listen to me. He's the second goat. He knows what it is to be driven outside the camp. He knows what it is to have thoughts of death. He knows what it is to be tormented. He knows what it is to face horrifying health battles in his body. He knows what it is. And many of God's finest have been under months and years of battle in their health. I know what Bob's gone through. I, I almost died myself, destroyed by hepatitis. My wife had cancer twice, a stroke while they were treating her for cancer, epilepsy, then radically healed after 12 years, two sons almost dead. I understand this. But we're in a time where we're facing spiritual warfare, where we're facing a zazzle head on. Quite honestly, beloved, many of us have been in the wilderness a long while. We just haven't risen up and faced it. I'm kind of in the wilderness right now. And the fact of it is, you, like me, represent a dying generation of people who came out of the last great revival in American history. It is the fact of it, that we're a link with a past that most have forgotten now. I know they've forgotten because they call these little church-wide renewals where some rivers flow a revival. Most of them have never really lived in what it is to see a nation swept by revival. And I thank God for all the manifestations of the Spirit that we've seen in Toronto or we've seen in Pensacola or we've seen in Reading. I thank God for every one, but it's not national revival. And so we find ourselves in this wilderness. And many of you are just in, in an agonizing, very hard time right now. You're facing the enemy on every front. I look at my life, it seems like the attack of the enemy is just relentless sometimes. But as I begin to ponder this thing about the two goats, it's given me such confidence to realize that my Jesus went in and he was the only goat not to walk off and die. I'll tell you, he's with me. He's with me in this warfare. He's, he's with you in this power. Many of you are hurting deeply today. I know it because you're like me. You're human. It's a hard time. You're fighting for people you love. 
You get older, you don't have the strength in your body, the resilience you used to live on. And if you haven't learned to feed on Christ by the time you're our age, you're just in trouble. You don't have the adrenaline you used to have. You don't have the physical strength you used to have. You don't have the bounce back you used to have. I just don't have it anymore. But I'll tell you one thing, my spirit is stronger. My mom and dad were great Christians. I've never seen a better marriage. My dad died at 77 after, with a form of Lou Gehrig's disease. Slow paralysis over 10 years, pastored the same church all his life in a gang area. He led people to Christ up until the last two weeks before he died. But I remember him sitting there when he was getting paralyzed. He said, he said son, look at me all you want. He said, I'm 18 in my spirit. Yeah. He'd read that Bible four hours a day. My mom is, my mom is going to be 83 soon. She, she'll, she'll read her Bible four hours a day and cry and intercede and pray and send me prophecies on Sunday on my text message. I'll tell you something. My body may wear down, but my spirit's got to stay strong because in the end, you're just a spirit and a body anyway. And I'll tell you, beloved, keep your spirit strong. Your grandchildren need you. Your children need you. Your church needs you. Your country needs you. Many of you last living link with something very precious that happened in this country. And let that fire burn. Now, so we're in the wilderness. We're, we're, we're facing tough things. Why, why would this happen? And I, I want to say three things to you, then I want to just talk about this, that as you're in the wilderness, remember what happened to Jesus before he went in the wilderness. He got baptized, and Pastor Bob talked about it last night. But the three words you need to hear to survive this day, it's never changed. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, the three, and then the power. Because we need three things. Number one, I'm God's kid. He loves me a bunch, and he's pleased with me. Those things set your identity in stone. And if you don't have those things, you'll be looking for someone else, no matter what your age is, to love you right and accept you right and to give you meaning. Let me tell you something, beloved. No matter what my country says about me, no matter how America defines, beloved, Christianity, let me tell you how I feel about it. God defines who I am. I am his son. I'm his beloved son, and he's pleased with me. This is just so critical, beloved. It's so, these, these fundamental things, don't forget them. Now, what happens in the wilderness? Well, we know with Jesus, it says when he came out of the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. I'm here to tell you by the Holy Ghost today, beloved, that when the church comes out of this wilderness experience, there's going to be new power on us because the wilderness forces us to depend on God afresh. And there's many types of wilderness Beloved, there's an economic wilderness. There's a political wilderness. And as the church goes into a political wilderness, it cuts us off from the feeling of having political power, leaves us feeling powerless, and forces us to return to the only source of power which matters anyway. Israel came out of 40 years in the wilderness and took over and conquered empires. 40 years. Because in 40 years, they learned one thing. Do what God says and believe him. And that's what it took to take the promised land. God is getting us back down to basics. Trusting him, believing him, praying, fasting. It's been so easy in America, we've rarely needed God to make it, other than individual struggle. The laws were in our favor. Economics were in our favor. We had godly men in the White House. I mean, we could pick up the phone and get laws passed, assets protected. That's shifting. That's changing. I believe in fighting it, but it's changing. It's going to force us to get back for the basics. Political power, by its very nature, is never intended by God to transform a human heart. 
At best, it restrains evil, freeing the church to do her job. But somehow many Christians begin to expect that the White House would do what the church was to do. That all of a sudden, the, the, the church became a branch of, the Christian, of, of Christianity. Pardon me, the, the white, it never did, beloved. It was never intended to. It was intended to restrain wickedness and create an environment where we could freely do our job. That's its purpose. That's its point. Why would God allow us in the wilderness? Well, beloved, he's not just going to empower us. He's going to purify us. Hosea 2, 14 and 15 says, I'm going to allure her and lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to give her back her vineyards. I'll make the valley of tears and suffering a door hope, and she'll respond to me again like she did when she was young, when she came out of Egypt. That's Hosea 2, 14 and 15. Holy Spirit, beloved, is calling us back into the wilderness right now to seek him. And in that wilderness, he's going to purify us. I mean, you, look, you know what happened in the wilderness? Basically, if you were unclean or diseased or in sin, you got put out of the camp. You had leprosy, you got put out of the camp. When Miriam slandered her brother, got put out of the camp for seven days. And God, by his spirit, is using this time in the wilderness to repurify us, to re-impassion us. Now, here's what's stunning. He said, I'm going to bring her into the wilderness and give her back her vineyard. How does God give you back your vineyard in the wilderness? Through supernatural power. You're going to see a wholesale call of God to purification. It's just going to ripple through the church. Pastor Bob brought out a whole new terminology of dealing with corruption last night, which understands this. God's cutting deep. He has to. He has to because, because in the end, the society will never be better than the church within her. It's just, a, it's just a tragic reality. He's purifying us. He's dealing with us. He's cutting into us. That's what he's doing. Goes on to say, and this is, this is, this is interesting here. It's also a place where the presence of God. Now, ponder this with me in Exodus 33, 7 to 11. Man, this is wild. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. Stop. Let's read this again. Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. If this doesn't shock you, it should. You know what that means? Where Moses sought God wasn't in the camp. They're in the wilderness. Now, this is the camp of the righteous. You know what God's saying? I can't even live in my own camp any longer. In fact, he says, Moses, don't pitch my tent in the camp. Pitch it outside the camp a long distance away. That, I've been reading that for years, and I was reading it in September, and studying a commentary, I said, man, wait a minute, I never thought about that. My God, God put himself outside the camp. Think about that. I have to wonder if God's been outside the American camp for a good long time now. Just waiting for us to wake up and realize we're going to have to take some steps to find him afresh. Now, do you understand, that's, outside the camp was where people with leprosy went, where murders were executed, where carcasses were burned, and that's where Moses would go to seek God. Every day, he'd get up and walk out into no man's land. He'd, he'd walk out into the wilderness. He'd walk out of the camp. I can't, comprehend, I can't even comprehend everything God's saying here. 
He'd walk out, and the cloud would follow him, and everyone in the camp would stand and begin to look out of the camp for their source. And they'd watch that big cloud come down outside the camp and land on Moses. God is waiting for us outside the camp with a power we've not known for decades. Don't be afraid of it. Because when we come back into the camp, oh, and we'll be invited back in, trust me. When we are, we'll have the purity and the power we need to sweep a nation. You know, it's, I've learned long ago, and many of you are older than me, it's not about me anymore. It's ceased to be. I have seven children, two grandchildren. I'll have a bunch of grandchildren one of these days. And I, I look and think to myself that if I'm just Simeon and I just get the privilege of holding the new thing God is doing and preparing his young parents to raise him right, I just want to see it before I go. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think I'll live long enough to walk it out fully, but I sure want to see it before I go. I want, I want to be Elizabeth and help Mary when she's pregnant. I want to be Simeon and prepare a young Mary and Joseph to raise a child right and tell them what it's going to be like. Man, my prayer is don't let me go until I see a sign of hope. Don't let me go, Lord, until I see it. Beloved, there's a measure of God's presence waiting for us in this time. God's sickened by what he sees in American society. People ask me, is America under God's judgment? I, I think it's hard to define that a lot of people making money saying he is. And, of course, if you prophesy catastrophe long enough and don't die, sooner or later your prophecy will probably come to pass. Like those who have been telling me California is going to fall off into the sea since I was in high school. Give me a break. There's an earthquake zone there. Doesn't take a prophet to figure the San Andreas Faults in California. But I, I think to myself, I think to myself this. There's millions of people here praying God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah for, for 10 I know one thing, as God's laws have been extracted from our society and as God's people have been excluded from power, the restraining presence of the Holy Spirit in our society is waning deeply. It's just waning. It's just waning. They're casting the restrainer out of our laws. They're casting the restrainer out of our country. They just are, and, and horrible sin stalks our streets now. But, but be that as it may, I've begun to realize, man, I've been going to the wilderness a good while now. Like, and I've walked with God long enough. I got that I have plenty of manna, and I, you know, and I'm walking with God and enjoying him, and God's been meeting me. It doesn't make me afraid, though. God's waiting for you. God's going to empower us. He's going to touch your children, he's going to touch your grandchildren. He's preparing his people. He's just waiting for us to help us, to touch us, to meet with us. This is another thing that hit me this morning down praying by the, the lake. In Matthew 3, 1 through 6, speaks of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. John the Baptist never preached in the city. Isn't it interesting? Never went into the camp. That's prophetic himself. John the Baptist of a priestly family. I mean, famous parents. Everyone knew the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, that that. She, that, that the day when they, they named the kid the crazy name, didn't name him the family name. How did you know that was just the talk of the priesthood? His mom and dad had been faithful for years, barren. Finally, by the casting of Lot, he went in the temple. Angel came. He came out mute, scared the country. And all of a sudden, the kids get stuck out in the wilderness. They can't even find him. 